Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And today is Friday, the 15th day of August 2014. And today we're reading from the big book. We're in the chapter, The Family Afterwards. And we are on page 123, and we are going to be starting with the one, two, three, fourth paragraph. Nope, sorry, I've got that wrong. I'll have to come back to it. And today's readers are the 12 Steps, Debbie, the 12 Traditions, Lois, and then Rakefit, Sally A., and Melanie, and our newcomer greeter will be Miriam. The share code for yesterday, Thursday, the 14th day of August, was 6764, 6764. And we will be starting our reading on page 123, the first full paragraph, suppose we tell you. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that People who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now ask Debbie B. to please read the 12 steps. Thanks, Monica. This is Debbie B., a recovering compulsive overeater in Canada. The 12 steps. One, We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Debbie. I will now ask Lois 
to read the Twelve Traditions. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, I, I can't find out what page they're on on the big book. The Twelve okay. Traditions. Sorry, okay. can somebody help fill me in or do it? Sure. Janice M., can you do the I'm 12 here. traditions for us? I'll be, I'll be Perfect. Going. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lois. Thank okay. you, Janice. Okay. Do you have them, Janice? Oh, yes. You're waiting for me. I thought, Lois, <clears throat> I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. I <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, our group purpose. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I pass. Thank you, Janice. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the, from the literature and stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinent requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. And once you're done sharing, 
let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. And today we resume our study of the big book. We are in the chapter, The Family Afterwards. We are on page 123, and we are beginning with the first paragraph, Suppose We Tell You. And I will ask Rakafet to start reading. Thank you, Monica. This is Rakafet, Recover Compulsive Overeater in California. Suppose we tell you some of the obstacles the family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years, and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. Father knows he is to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he shouldn't be reproached. Perhaps he will never have much money again. But the wise family will admire him for what he is trying to be, rather than for what he is trying to get. Now and then the family will be plagued by specters from the past, for the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based upon only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with a new way of living. Okay, so um, in reading this, this page, what really caught my eye was the beginning of the second paragraph. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. So um, uh, while I was raising my three daughters by myself, I was deep into the food but trying to get abstinent. I had come into OA over 15 years ago, and I had 15 years of relapse and abstinence, relapse and abstinence, and I was going crazy. I looked back to page 21 because this really describes the kind of alcoholic I am. I am a, a real alcoholic, and here it describes me to the T. Here is a, um, the second paragraph. Here is a fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That was me in the food. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I could be so completely opposite when I was in the food or when I was abstinence. And I was always going back and forth between those, between those states. So, of course, my, my kids were crazy. They never knew when I was one way or, or another. And also on page 21, it goes down later and describes me here too. 
he may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. And then goes down below. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. So, um, and then the, the next uh, couple sentences down. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. So this is me here. The family confidence in dad is rising high, but I can ruin it. I can ruin it. Every time I got an accident, you know, after the, my kids saw that I was a little bit abstinent, you know, after a week or two or a month, they thought I was okay. I was going to be okay now. But then I would have, again, I would turn into somebody completely different when I pick up the food, and then I would become a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And they didn't like who I was when I was eating. I, when I was abstinent, when I was eating, I was, I was very, very sad. Um, I would... I, I shut down from life. I shut down from my kids. I did what I had to do. I barely existed. I went to work. I did everything I had to do for my kids and nothing else. Nothing else. But as soon as I got abstinent, feeling a little better, then there I was for my kids, for myself. Life was completely different. And so the problem is that I went back and forth and back and forth with this constantly. And my kids, like I said, they never knew when I was going to be one way or the other. I was one way, I was abstinent for a while, and then I'd come home from work one day, and i tell them that I broke my abstinence, and they start whispering between each other, Mom broke her abstinence, Mom broke her abstinence. And then they'd have to tiptoe around me, because I was in a bad mood, I was sad, I was shut down. So this really puts it in my face, what happened to me. And thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Rakita. Would anyone like to comment on this page that we've written, page 123? This is Bella. Can I share? Larry. Bella? Larry? Is there anybody else? Kim. Kim. Okay. Bella, Larry, and Kim. You're up. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I'm a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Monica, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. Yes, these uh, paragraphs that uh, we just read, they are so much in them. And I want to talk about uh, the last paragraph. The family may proceed by the idea that that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. Wow. Yes, it's so much, such a powerful sentence because, yes, before the program, I didn't want to leave the past. I wanted to erase the past. I was so much afraid and embarrassed and guilty for my past, and I wanted just to erase it. It's a thing that it's impossible. Now, Thank God, thank God that I am in the program. I learned to live one day at a time, not to live the past, not to live the future, but also I choose to believe that I don't want to erase the past. I want to take the things from the past and to learn from them. Now that I am connected to God, 
I, I don't have fear. I am not afraid to look at, at things and to say, well, yes, I did a mistake. How can I fix it now, today? And it's okay. I can fix it. And all those people and all those uh, situations that I, I, I have resentment, now that I am connected to God, I know nothing happened for nothing. God didn't mean to punish me or God didn't want to to bring me to situations that I will meet bad people or terrible people. Now that I am connected to God, I am choosing to understand, wait a minute, Bella, why you had to meet those people? What can you learn for now? And this is my happiness, not to erase the past, just to live with the experience for the benefit. Yes, now that I am connected to God, I can benefit from everything, from every person, from anything that maybe made me angry or upset then, but now it can be only a benefit. And now that I am connected to God, I know I don't have control. I am not responsible for the outcomings. Things that happened in the past, not according to my will, it's nothing to do with me. It's not because I was a bad girl or a stupid one, because it means that this is what God wanted for me. And what can I learn from them? And this is the happiness that I live now fearful with a free, a, a free fear person that I know that I am connected to God. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. And Larry, you're up. Larry, you're up. Star one to unmute, Larry. All right. Oh, let's go on to Kim, and then we'll come back to Larry. Kim? Good morning, Monica. Good morning, all. My name is Kim Jana. We lost you, Kim. Can you hear me now, Monica? Yes, I can. Okay. Okay. I'm going to look at that second paragraph there. It says, but the head of the household has spent years in pulling down the structure of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. And this beckons me back to, um, I, I think it's page 70, 75 or something, where it talks about the tornado. And we go roaring through the lives of our family, and we come up from the storm cellar and say, when the wind stop blowing, Ma, I don't see the problem here. You know, I've spent years tearing down the parts of my life and I think that people simply because I'm abstinent should just accept it and move on. You know, and, and I think back to what Rakef had said, and I have to tell you, my experience is the same but a little different. You know, just getting abstinent wasn't enough. You know, when I was abstinent, my personal experiences, those bedevilments on page 52 got worse. They got worse because I was in untreated alcoholism. So my family 
often would wish I would eat because I was so vicious when I was abstinent, because I was so angry, I was restless, I was irritable, discontent, I was a prey to misery and depression. I could not be useful to anyone. All those bedevilments were exaggerated while I was abstinent. So what this is talking about here is people before they found AA. But my experience lines up with Rakefit where I was in and out of the food for many years in Overeaters Anonymous. So they couldn't take OA seriously. Why is this time in OA different than the other times that I said, don't worry about it, family. Everything's going to be okay. And I would be okay for a little while, get anger and anger, and my untreated alcoholism was becoming worse and worse, and then tear that down. So I had to recognize now that, that as I became a student of the big book and I became recovered and that obsession was removed, I was going to have to spend some time. It talks about there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. So especially with health, we have damaged our bodies. You know, we have, we have a self-imposed crisis often of knee problems and, and diabetes and high blood pressure. And our bodies don't bounce back just because we put the food down. You know, our families have had to deal with higher costs of, of insurance and doctor's bills and all these different things. It's going to take a while. You know, for me, I've been at the same job for 13 years. For four years, I've been recovered. For nine years, I was a lunatic. I still catch my boss sometimes looking at me, wondering if that person she knew the first nine years is going to poke up her head and cause trouble. It takes, it's taken her a while to trust the person I am as a recovered person is the person I'm going to be. Friendships went by the wayside. I'm still trying to repair friendships over the last four years because I neglected them. And now that I, I'm, I'm back, people don't particularly trust that. Or they've gone on with their lives and gotten married and have children, and I'm still single. I mean, romance. I haven't dated for six years. I'm one, I want to start dating again. But honestly, I don't know. I don't have the skills I did six or seven years ago because I have, I have cocooned myself in a relapse for so many years, not wanting to deal with them because I hated my body and I hated who I was. I'm having to learn how to interact with men again. So I like the saying, your actions are so loud, I cannot hear a word that you're saying. So that's what they're letting us know here, that our actions of as a recovered person is going to have to be consistent and it's going to have to be continuous in order for the people in our lives to start to believe us. So that's what this is saying. But it's letting us know though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And Larry, are you there? Monica, can you hear me now? I sure can. Go ahead, Larry. Okay, thanks. Sorry about that. Larry, uh, thanks for your service, Monica. Larry, recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. So, yeah, the 83, page 83, reminds us about that, that long period of reconstruction. That's been my experience. Um, in this chapter, you know, I'm reminded of the road, you know, that I used to be on. And that road uh, caused a lot of damage in my family. I inflicted a lot of damage upon uh, the members of my family. Now, have I changed? Yes, um, indeed. You know, I have. God has seen to it that, you know, that my roots are grasping a new soil and I'm on a different, a different footing now. You know, the promises on page 83, though, say we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And so, so how can the damage done to my family be repaired 
you know, how can the hurt feelings, the, the anger, fear, guilt, uh, remorse be assuaged? And, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, my daughter, you know, who's now 18, she remembers the dad who stole her candy, you know, uh, who was happy one moment, angry the next. You know, from an early age, she saw me berate other people, you know, a store clerk, whomever, for indiscretions that made little sense to her. She couldn't make sense of that. Uh, how could anyone? It didn't make any sense. She was forced to kind of ride that that emotional roller coaster. You know what? You know, little child uh, has a choice whether to be with dad or not. You know, but but wait. You know, but but I took her to Disney World every year. You know, I really did. I, I regularly tried to buy her love out of my own guilt and, and so forth. And you know, her mother experienced the same thing, but but without the emotional protection of unconditional love. See, she, her mother saw the smashed windshield one day, plans for trips to Europe the next. I mean, you talk about a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, my, my family was conditioned by my selfish behavior. I wasn't, I wasn't um, steeped in, in, in God. God had not flown in, uh, flowed in. I, I was aware of a God. But I, I, I didn't have access to a God. So, of course, I ate and ate and ate. Food wasn't my problem at all. But I ate to blot out my self-loathing. It gave me the only comfort. It was my only friend. You know, my maddening inability to change. And it's, it's also been my experience that even after having a spiritual awakening, it took time to clear away the wreck. You know, like I said, though, though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, New structures will take years to complete. So this program is not for the impatient. And it's not simply for the winners in life. I mean, did I just describe a winner? You know, that was not a winner. It's for the survivors, for those willing to persevere in action, not perfection. And yes, today my family's confidence has been restored. I can tell you that that's, that's, the, that's the story today. And I, I, I try to remain in fit spiritual condition, and I have love and power. That would be uh, somebody telling me that I, they, they're tired of hearing me talk. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. Would anyone... Some technical difficulties here. Would anyone else like to comment on these paragraphs? Hannah. Hannah. Go ahead, Hannah. Good morning. I'm Hannah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Colorado. You know, what really strikes me about these paragraphs is the, the need to give up my expectations of um, what my family will be like, you know, now that I'm in recovery. <laughs> and... I, I think that that, you know, I, I, I've recently reconnected with a family member I haven't been in touch with for a long time. And, and it's, it's a very spotty reconnection, but I'm okay with it. And 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been okay with it. I'm not sure I would have been okay with it five years ago. But, but now I, I've learned really through practicing 
the program, and when I say practicing the program, I mean remembering that that line. I forget. Love and tolerance are are code words. Um, and there's another line, and when it says, "Can we bring these these I, these principles into our often deranged family lives?" You know, my family is deranged. They're sick people, um, and it's a huge relief for me and probably for them when I give up my expectations that, well, I have a program and so now somehow they're going to have a program, not, not through my program, but somehow they're going to be different. Um, I think that, that that really is living the solidity of reality rather than the fantasies of um, they'll accept me and praise me and love me and want me in their lives now. Um, letting go of that with, with real compassion for myself and for them is, is what I, I really get from these paragraphs that I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Hannah. Would anyone else like to comment on this before we move on? This is Lois. Suji. Lois and Suji. Lois, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. This is Lois. I uh, recovered in Massachusetts. And, and this is such a, a broad and wide um, subject, you know, for me. Um, you know, for, it, it just brings me back to, uh, you know, how, how deep and how powerful... Uh, I was steeped in this disease, you know, the, the disease of compulsive overeating and brought with it my own, you know, family disease. And um, it, th- thank, thank God, you know, thank God for, for recovery. When I, when I think about this and, and hear the people sharing in my own situation, I just thank God that, that I did get the message and I did ham- and I am recovered and I am here today. You know, it's such a uh, devious, powerful disease, that um, when, when I was in the disease, which was for the most part of my life, I was in disease in different levels, that, um, you know, whoever I, whoever I was in, in con- relationship with, which was husband and three children, you know, I, you know, I was, my, 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 um, my whole self, my seeing, my spirit was, uh, you know, was affected by this disease and my perceptions and the and and how I perceived myself and them, so that you know I was not able to be who who I wanted to be, and um, and I was not able to be what they needed me to be. My children growing up when they're being formed, you know, their their life's choices were being formed and et cetera, et cetera, and and you know, and thank God that I did get the message and I one day at a time am recovered and continually take it a day at a time. But building the relationships, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was self-centered, you know. I wasn't able to be involved or thought about what was, they, what was going on with them. To a certain extent, I was, but, you know, it, they, were, they were deeply affected. And, and the way I saw my relationship, you know, when I was in disease, I thought that I was just a great, you know, great mother. And they, how come they didn't see things the way I saw them? So building relationships takes a long time. And I think the hardest thing for me was my adult children, they don't always, 
they they have their own issues like with with me and sometimes just themselves and they you know they don't always want to see things the way I see them you know I mean and so I can't you know the hardest thing for me was remaining abstinent you know working my program but not alone I needed I needed um, a sponsor and I needed network to help me bear you know the the problems that were created by my my disease and and to be give them time to work through and to allow them, you know, the, their own dignity of growing through their own pain and, and me living with that. You know, it, it's, it's not easy, but, you know, this program has, has been there for me. You know, the uh, God has been there for me, the, my network of people, my sponsors, and this, um, this, this vision for you helps, too, that, to know that how other people get through these how they get through their life's problems. And um, there isn't anything, you know, that, that can happen that somebody else hasn't been able to, to help you with. And, and with that, I'm going to pass, and I'm uh, very grateful today. Thank you, uh, Monica. Thank you, Lois. Suji, you're next. Hi, everybody. It's Suji, a grateful, recovered overeater in Pennsylvania, southeastern part of um, lest we think that this is all about us and our transgressions, back to page 563, Tradition 1, Long Form, each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live or most of us will surely die, hence our common welfare comes first. But individual welfare follows close afterwards. And it's the same thing in the family. The family that thinks, oh, the past, the good old days, they were wonderful. That family's deluded. <laughs> the, the good old days weren't all wonderful. Maybe they were mostly wonderful or maybe they were mostly awful. It depends on your circumstances. We have all different circumstances that we grew up in in our fellowship and different ones we lived in. It, it's not all good or all bad. It's a mixture. And that's what we learn in our recovery. And that's the biggest message of my recovery to me, that I'm I'm no longer overreacting to my difficulties. I'm no longer living in shame. Oh my goodness, I have an eating disorder. Isn't that awful? I don't have to behave according to what my illness might tell me. I don't have to uh, respond to that Goofy that Lori talks about, Goofy standing on my shoulder and saying, come on, come on, come back into your addiction. I, I don't have to do that, and neither does the family. So the families had big-time losses because the family started to do the dance around us or around whoever the other addicts are in the family. And there usually are plenty of other ones, too, because addiction is a disease that's a human disease, and many of us have it. So... The dance the family does is it starts to center itself around one member, and that one member gets all the attention. I had a couple of kids that were dancing around with addiction, and and the third one got some deficiencies of attention, and my husband and myself had that trouble. And I bring the same thing when I bring my food addiction into the place. Well, guess what? The same dance can happen around me because there's nothing like a thoroughly horrible, restless, irritable, discontent person for the whole family to say, well, the hell with our old values, pardon my French. We'll just 
we, we don't care about what meant things to us in the past that were really important. What we're going to do is blame the person that's sick. And we, we do that back and forth. The family gets sick. The family member says, I, I don't like what you did. And in fact, I don't like you. I hate you. I don't love you anymore. I don't trust you. That trust is a sacred thing. That, that's what we get back in our recovery, too. And the family gets it back, too, if they get in recovery, but it takes quite a while. I can't force the people around me to understand where I am in my recovery. I may be miles past where somebody else is. I may be very recovered and I have a kid who's still growing up because that's just what they're supposed to be doing. I wasn't supposed to be being a kid as an adult, though. I was supposed to be being a fun kid, but not an addicted kid. And so the family has to deal with its identity as addicted kids, too. The family loses its sense of meaning when it's dancing around the addicted loved one's behavior. The family gets really lost in faith, and they don't have a, a guide anymore. So the family needs to find its bearings and and see what's important. And in here it, it talks about, you know, you lose, the, the addict loses his employment and, it's, and isn't that a mess. Well, if the point of the employment in the family to begin with was that the family was groveling for lots of money, then the life in the past in the family wasn't so good, was it? Because what you really want to have is people that love each other and can cooperate with each other and not behave according to the guide posts of addiction. So so it's a big problem, and each person has to take responsibility for his part in it. Thanks for letting me share. I pass. Thank you, Suji. Let's move on. And Sally A., would you read for us, please? Yes. Monica, good morning. Good morning, a vision for you. This is Sally A. in South Jersey, a recovered compulsive overeater. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and and frequently it is almost the only one. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problems. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding place. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgave each other and drew closer together. 
the miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then, under one provocation or another, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains, and they hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be rewon. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. So we see here a balance is being provided to us, a balance of when do we bring out the experience, when do we let sleeping dogs lie. That's what I'm looking at here on this page. Page 124 uh, at the top of the page talks about future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. But then moving down the page to Henry Ford, we're talking about the fact that Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value. So there's this balancing going on here from the top of the page, forgetfulness of the past, then they're going to talk about experience and how it can be very useful, and then ending the entire page at the top of 125 with you know, considering the possibility that it might be best to not be discussing it. I'm reminded of page, the bottom of page 29 says, it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And then at the bottom of page 89, again, another place that talks about the value of our experience. Bottom of page 89, ministers and doctors are competent, and you can learn much from them if you wish. But it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. And so we see here throughout our reading in this book and our, our instruction manual that our experience has great value. And we're encouraged to use our past experience to the blessing of those we come in touch with. At the same time, that balancing act, forgetfulness of the past at the, at the top of 124 and at the end of one, at the top of 125, the end of the reading. So we think that unless some good and useful purposes to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. And I reminded of the middle of page 86, and this is in the middle of step 11, where it says, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection for that would diminish our usefulness to others. And so we have this balancing of how we use our brain, how we use our past, whether it's going to be helpful, whether it's going to be diminishing our usefulness to others. And so I want to end by saying at the middle of 124, and I know many of you have heard me talk about In God's Hands, which is found on page 80, page 100, page 124, um, and other places. Here we see, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others 
With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And so I think that is the key, is what is the motivation for sharing our past? Is it because we want to sulk? And, you know, I, I like sometimes to think about how differently my past would have been if I had a different set of parents um, and how different my own children, um, their lives would have been if I could have been healthy and if I had been in recovery years before I was in recovery. But it is what it is, and I do cling to the thought that in God's hands, my past is what it is supposed to be. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. I believe that the timing of my life, the timing of my becoming recovered is exactly what it should be. It allows my my experience to be exactly what it is. And I can use my experience wisely in God's hands. I can bring it to the forefront of my mind. I can share it in useful ways. And I can let sleeping dogs lie whichever the case may be. Thanks for letting me share. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Would anyone like to comment on these paragraphs? Penny C. Patty. Sarah. Penny, Penny C. Patty. Patty. Yes. Sarah. Okay. Penny C., Patty, and Sarah. Penny, you're up. Good morning. Thank you, Monica, and thank you, everybody, for coming on the line this morning. Um, this is Penny C. I'm recovered compulsive overeater living in Massachusetts. Um, experience is the thing of supreme value in life only if one is willing to turn the past into good account. That says to me, don't waste mistakes. Mistakes are valuable. For years, I was involved and my job was teaching nurses in uh, hospitals, nursing schools. And so many times, um, you know, especially a young nurse would be devastated by having made most of the time a very minor, minor error. And, and, and so I would sit down with them and talk about, all right, how did it happen? What were the consequences? What did you learn? And my mantra was always, do not waste this mistake. Do not waste it. That's, that's the only tragedy I used to say in making a mistake is if you don't use that experience wisely. And so when I came to OA and and began to study this big book and read and studied about how experience, our own experience, is the the most important asset I have in in, in not only in dealing and working with other compulsive overeaters, but in dealing with everyday situations with my family, with with people I meet at the supermarket, the receptionist at my doctor's office, things things happen every day, and I have have learned through the twelve steps, especially I'm thinking of steps eight and nine, that I am aware aware of the mistakes now from living the 12 steps, and especially, as someone else said, doing that nightly inventory, I become aware of where I could have been better yesterday, and I have an opportunity to change that. And so when I look at step nine and talking about, you know, going out and making amends, you know, I I am, am able to discern with the help of other 
people in my, my network of spiritual mentors, I'm able to discern whether I should bring up a situation from the past. If it's going to hurt somebody else, it is of no use, then, then I don't. So I, I, do, I do still talk about mistakes I've made, but not to anyone it would hurt. That's where I'm so grateful for sponsors and, and people on this line that I can call and tell them of my past errors and, and you know, make amends for it, but not to the point of hurting someone else. And I'm guided. I'm guided with, with uh, the knowledge and the wisdom of people who've been living these steps and are, in, are, are recovered. And I, that, for that, I am just so grateful. And thank you. I'll pass. Thank you, Penny C. And Patty, you're up. Okay. Hi, this is Patty, and I am a compulsive overeater from California and um, recovered. And I'd like to bring up the, um, the last sentence in the first paragraph, which says, the alcoholic's past thus becomes a principal asset of the family, and frequently it is the only one. And then at the very bottom it says, with it you can avert death and misery for them. Um, if I didn't have my disease, if I didn't have the problems I had, I would not be able to help others who have this disease and have this problem. And um, my family wouldn't either. Um, my husband is in recovery now for um, alcoholism and food addiction. But, um, you know, we can go to meetings and we can share our experience, strength, and hope. And our experience, if we didn't have it, we would not be able to help others. So this is the, the past that becomes my greatest asset, to be able to go to a meeting or to go to another food addict and say that, you know, I had this problem and there is a solution and give them hope. Uh, that is just the most wonderful thing we have to offer. Thank you so much and I will pass. Thank you, Patty. And Sarah, you're up. Uh, good morning, Monica. Good morning, Vision, for you. This is Sarah W., Grateful, Recovered, Compulsive Reader in Florida for my last day and uh, originally from Iowa. Um, I love, this is my very favorite page in the book. I mean, this is why I call myself a Grateful, Recovered, Compulsive Overeater. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the past is the, gr- the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And, you know, every compulsive bite I took got me to this place I'm at today. And it's given me compassion for other people because it's it's allowed me to see my humanness. And, you know, when it talks about the rectify the errors and convert them into assets, the alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently is the only one. You know, at the end of the day, you know, my husband says, you know, we have to be able to look ourselves in the mirror. You know, it's, it's that 10-step thing. And, and say to ourselves, you know, did I do the best I could? Did, you know, did I flow into this stream of life? Did I, did I give it my best? Was I selfish? Was I resentful? Was I fearful? You know, what did I do? How did I do? And, you know, I, I think Penny C. made some great comments, too. It's not just about working with others uh, in, the, in the fellowship. I mean, it is about that, but it isn't all about that. It's about how I deal with my family, how I deal with my coworkers, you know, 
um, you know, I guess the word I would I would put in there is integrity. Um, humility and integrity come into play, I think, so much in how we respond to people. And I'm not saying I do it perfect because I have plenty of 10 steps, especially around family issues. But the reality is that I really try to be an honest human being. I try to live with integrity today. And that's what, um, you know, the painful past has given me, the idea to see, you know, my faults in it and try to rectify those as best I can, and also the idea that I don't do things to rectify my past by hurting others to get some kind of sense of, uh, you know, feeling like I'm okay with myself. I have to be very careful on how I go about doing that and be responsible about it. And and talking to people in recovery, talking to people that 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 are working the program and living in the solution is, is how I go about that. But, you know, I think, you know, my, my relapse, um, you know, I, I've utilized that to have compassion for people, to realize that this is a severe disease, that this is something that I have to look at myself every day and remember, I am a compulsive overeater. I am not beyond the disease. I have not gotten to the point where I am totally... I can negate the fact that this will never happen to me again. I have to keep on constant guard. And by doing 10, 11, and 12 and being honest and having people around me that know me and doing 10, 11, and 12, that, that's what helps me stay in the solution and stay away from relapse. And with God's help, you know, God is the one that I have to go to for all that I need. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And we've got time for one quick share. Would anyone like uh, to Carolyn? share? Carolyn, go ahead. You're up. Hi. Um, yeah, I would agree with what people have said before that you know that the dark past is my greatest possession, but I have to be, you know, judicious in terms of how I use it. Um, today, I'm I'm willing to be brutally honest with other people, and um, there used to be a lot of shame around that. Today, there's a lot of freedom for me. Um, when they say you're as sick as your secret, you're only as sick as your secret. That was very true for me. Uh, but I had to learn that. I grew up in a family full of secrets. You know, I didn't know that my mother's sister had killed herself until about 12 years later when one of her daughters told me. Um, and, and that's one of many, many secrets. My mother always believed, you know, whatever happens in the family, our immediate family, that, that's it. You tell no one. Um, you know, that never really sat right with me. So it was only as I got in this program and started being really, really honest with these people, excuse me, I'm out of breath, I was walking, um, that I realized the value to them and to me, you know, not of like, you know, hashing over the gory details of, you know, I ate this and I did this, and but to be brutally honest about, you know, yeah, I ate the garbage, yeah, you know, I ate so much I threw up without even wanting to, um, because, you know, it, it might ring a bell with someone else. It might make them feel there's less shame around something that normally they, they couldn't handle um, or they would feel like they were the only one. You know, So I talk freely about the, the many harms I've caused while being in my disease. Um, I also talk freely about being bipolar because you know, there's still a lot of, of stigma around mental illness in this country, and I think it's really important that people hear other people talking very matter-of-factly about it. This is a disease like any other, you know? Um, it's you know there there are cures, but um, people need to hear that. They need to hear it being spoken of freely and honestly and without shame. 
And that's true outside the rooms as well. You know, I mean, I don't run around saying I'm in a 12-step program and I'm bipolar. But if I find an opportunity where I think someone can benefit, you know, I, I will say something. Um, sometimes it's years that I've known someone before this comes up. But if I feel there's a chance for me to help someone else, then I feel like that's, that's one of the reasons I have these afflictions. And that's in, in program. I used to call myself the poster child for relapse. I mean, today, thank God, I'm, I'm recovered. But, you know, I, I had full recovery, I believed, in vision a few months ago and lost it. You know, I hadn't worked 10 through 11 enough. But, uh, you, know, why, you know, why do I have to go through that over and over again? My God, how many times do I have to be shown? And it's like it's not just me being shown. It's me then turning around and telling everybody. It's like I'm, I'm you know, living this pain so that I can share it with others and, and hopefully, share, you know, lessen some of their pain. So that's how I choose to see it today, you know, that I'm here to do whatever God's will is, including, you know, suffer when need be and pass it on honestly. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. And this is Monica. I am a recovered compulsive overeater, and I was just, you know, listening to everyone this morning and, and thinking how lucky we are. Here we are in the family afterward, how lucky we are as compulsive overeaters to have this book, to have all this information, to have these guidelines given to us, to give us hope, to give us strength, to share with others our experiences, and that this is good that can come out of our histories and, and things that we've done in the past. It's good in that we can share it with another compulsive overeater. It's good that having worked through the steps, God has shown me what I couldn't see before, what I didn't know before, and today I can make a different choice. I don't have to be that same wild, crazy woman. I can be a loving and tolerant person today. So we're just so lucky here to have all these guidelines and these principles to carry on into our families after we've gone through the steps. And, of course, living steps 10, 11, and 12 every day. So, uh, you know, a lot of hope for everyone that's out there listening. And with that, we have come to the end of our time today. Thank you to everyone who has shared. And we will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And, Melanie, can you read for us, please, from a vision for you? Hi, good morning, Monica. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater calling in from Oregon. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, 